0: Well, let's review the journey uh, that we've taken to this point. Uh, We started off, and in chapter 1, we asked the question, what am I supposed to do with myself? Uh, What is it that Scripture and the Gospel would invite me to do with myself that would allow me to have things like confidence, identity, security, and purpose? Um, And at that point, we said self-esteem is probably not what Scripture would call us to do. Uh, that while well-intentioned, it places the focus on us in a way that's never going to be able, in an enduring and satisfying way, uh, to give us what we're looking for. And so then we we begin to look at what are some of the things that we are looking for in the name of or through the process of self-esteem that we would have to find in some other way. And in chapter 2, we said one of those things was identity. And we wanted to answer the question, uh, who am I? How does scripture give me a sense of identity? And in chapter three, we sought to answer the question of purpose. Uh, Why am I here? And how do I get to know both the broad purpose of God, to know Him and enjoy Him forever, and then the more narrow purpose of God, of how did He craft and design me in such a way that I'm gonna find the greatest sense of satisfaction and fulfillment as I live that out. And now, in chapter 4, we're going to begin to ask the question, how do we find a Christ-honoring sense of confidence? And so let's start here by looking at our definition of for confidence. Biblical confidence is the demeanor that exhibits a positive expectation that God will enable us to accomplish any good work He calls for us to do. And so we stop there and we just say, confidence doesn't mean that I think I can do anything, anytime, any way that I might want to or somebody would ask me to do. Confidence is the sense that anything that God would ask or require of me, He will equip and enable me to do that. And then we're going to look at three time zones. Kind of before, during, and after that activity. So we start with before. Before. This demeanor results in increasingly shorter period of hesitation and level of anxiety when attempting a task. So as I have confidence, then my sense of, I don't know, hesitation, hemming and hawing, asking questions, um, yet the level of stress that I feel going into that is going to be less as I grow in confidence. And there will be a greater degree of peace and fulfillment while planning, carrying out, and evaluating this task. So in the moment, as I'm doing it, whether it's planning, whatever that is, I, am, I have a greater sense of peace as I'm doing that. And after the task is complete, biblical confidence reduces the degree of pressure to repeat or exceed the accomplishment and the temptation to pride. And in many ways, for kind of type A perfectionist, it's this latter part that's most difficult. Because once we do something to a certain degree well, that kind of becomes the standard. And so next time we have to do it a little bit better or we didn't do it well enough. And then next time we have to do it a little bit well better than that or else it was a failure. And each time God enables us to do something, that becomes the new bar that we have to reach to a degree that is exhausting and unsustainable. And if we give in to that false notion of confidence, then God becomes this boss like figure who is never pleased, never satisfied. On every performance evaluation, we have to do a little bit better, or else he wants to know why we've been slacking. And he's no longer that father figure who is excited as he sees each time that we do those things that we were made to do. And there's this sense of delight and satisfaction that he takes in seeing us live out the design that he placed in our life. And so what we're going to do here is we're going to talk about three pieces of a healthy biblical confidence. And the first of those is that we we place our faith in a trustworthy object. Oftentimes, when it comes to to confidence, we we use a verbal formula that goes something like this. I will be confident when? And we put something on the backside of that. Uh, I will be confident when uh, I get married and then there's somebody who kind of accepts me and they're committed to me and I don't have to worry about the relationship stuff anymore. Or, I will be confident when I finish this degree and I get a new set of initials after my name and somehow that's going to to provide the uh, sense of accomplishment that's going to make my my lack of confidence go away. Or, I'm going to be confident when... Um, I earn a certain level of income and then the financial stress goes away and I don't have to to worry about financial pressure that makes me have a lack of confidence. Or I'll be confident when I lose 15 pounds and I can fit into the clothes that I want to fit into. And in some way or another, we use this verbal formula of I will be confident when. And whatever that is, is the object that we're placing our trust in. So let's just take the example of losing 15 pounds and see what that would do. Because there's kind of this goal. When I lose 15 pounds, then I'll be confident. And so all the way to that goal, I'm just kind of self-loathing. I don't like myself. I'm not good enough. And because I am down on myself and I'm beating myself up, I want comfort. And we know in that situation what form comfort is going to take. It's a bon-bon. I mean, it just inevitably, at that point, as I am disliking myself on the way to that goal, comfort, because of how I'm fixating on, on me and myself, is going to take the form of something that would, would push me against that goal. Now, let's say for a moment I persevere, and I get to the point, and I get there. At that point, Falling back is only one pound away. And at that, I just got, I feel, I'm bracing against falling back and the scale going up one. And so there's no rest. There's no fulfillment because even though I got here, I know I am one increment on the scale from feeling like a failure again. And so there's no rest. There's nothing sustainable there. We live in fear. Um, C.S. Lewis gives us another version of this. He says, No man who says, I'm as good as you, really believes it. He would not say it if he did. Uh, the St. Bernard never says this to the toy dog, nor the scholar to the dunce, nor the employable to the bum, nor the pretty woman to the plain. The claim of equality outside of the strictly political field is made only by those who feel themselves to be in some way inferior. And so whatever that thing is that we say, I will be confident if, and we kind of get mad at those who haven't, and we want to say that I'm just as good, it, just, it creates this scoring system in which we can't really even open up in real relationship and enjoy people. And it's why I would say um, a constant sense of confidence is actually a cover-up. Because I don't think God ever intended for us to be confident about everything all of the time. We all have strengths and weaknesses, things we're good at and things we're not, and things that we're not good at right now, but in a few years we'll understand and we'll grow into. I don't think God ever designed for us to be confident about everything all the time. And part of what happens when we strive for that is one, it just becomes this unsustainable burden as we feel like we have to be. But then it makes it very hard to be in authentic relationships. Because those who know me best get to know my strengths and weaknesses. You know, that's why for many people marriage is hard. Because with everybody else, I get to relate to you on the basis of my strengths and my interests. If we get together, it's around something that I really enjoy doing. Uh, It's in an area that I've had training and expertise in. That's kind of what brings us together. When I go home to somebody who really knows me, that's when somebody begins to see my weaknesses and the things that I'm not good at. And that's not just true of marriage. It's true of any relationship that becomes more close and personal. And if we feel like we have to be confident about everything all the time, it's going to make those kind of relationships begin to feel off-limits and unsafe. And so the first part uh, of confidence is placing our faith in a trustworthy object that's not going to betray us when we begin to get in a close and authentic relationship. Uh, The second part is to accurately assess our abilities. And part of what we have to realize is that God does not disseminate abilities like parents give out Skittles. Parents give out Skittles if they've got a group of kids and they give the same number of red Skittles and the same number of blue Skittles and orange Skittles and yellow Skittles because if not, we're going to have a meltdown. Uh, I experienced this not too long ago. We had our two boys over the house. We had another family with two kids. They had brought over a cake. We were eating outside. Forgot the plastic forks. Um, my wife sent me in to get the plastic forks. I'm in a hurry. I want to get out there because they're going to start finger painting the house with the icing if I don't. So I just reach in. I grab some forks. I come out and I realize I had three white forks and one red fork. This is parenting 101. You don't do this. I mean, at that point, it all melts down about who's going to get the red fork because It's special. Uh, I knew better. I just wasn't paying attention. I was trying to prevent the finger painting and this is what happened. Um, God isn't that way. He uniquely gifts each one of us in each way for the purpose that He intends to fulfill through our life. Uh, And and that's something that if we're going to have confidence, we're going to have to be okay with that. Um, And and part of what I think helps us be okay with that is when we understand some of the relationship between strengths and weaknesses. Most weaknesses are just exaggerated strengths. And so if you're a compassionate person, chances are you're going to have the weakness of anxiety or people-pleasing. Because that, that sense of empathy... That concern and thinking about other people and what's going on in their world and the kinds of things that you look and you see and you want to care for them and you anticipate them before it happens. Those are the same intellectual, emotional muscles that you use to worry and that make you want to please everybody else. At the same time, if you're a leader and you're somebody who can make things happen and see a vision and carry it out, then there's a chance, more than a chance, of probability uh, that you're going to emphasize the cause over the people and you're probably going to hurt some people in the process. In the same way, if you're a detail-oriented person who can see the system and make it work, there's a good chance you're going to emphasize the system over the people. And in that sense, we might say, Uh, our strengths are kind of like medication. They're great for what what they're good for, but they also come with side effects. And we need to understand that, that that any strength that we have is going to have some countering balance. And if we become so enamored with our strength that we don't account for the weaknesses that come along with it, then it's probably either going to undermine our sense of confidence when we don't understand that, Or it's going to harm our relationships and we're going to get upset with people that they just won't let us operate in our strengths. I think another part of accurately assessing uh, our abilities um, can be seen in the parable of the talents. If you remember that uh, story, Jesus was uh, telling of a king uh, who went away and he gave different stewards of his different talents. And and a talent here means a sum of money, it's not like athletic ability or academic ability. Um, but to one, he gave five talents. To another, he gave three talents. And to another, he gave one talent. And again, we see that God is not the God of equal number Skittles. Uh, but he gives to each one differently. And, and when the king returns, he, come, he calls each of the servants to himself, and he calls the one to which he gave five. And he says, you gave me five, I worked with those, here are five more. And, and the king says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And the one who had three um, you know, he says, hey, you gave me three, and I can't hear three more. Here are six. And he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And then the one who had one, you kind of get the sense that he was a little insecure. Uh, he didn't feel quite proud of that. And so he just kind of took and hid it. And he said some things about who God was, you know, and that kind of thing. And, and I think we tend to do this With the different areas of our lives. There's some things that we grade as like a five-star quality about us. And we are more than happy to let God use that. And there's other things that we kind of view as three-star qualities. You know, if God wants to use that, that's cool. And then there's these one-star areas that we just, we feel like we want to hide. And part of what we need to see is that in accurately assessing our abilities, God can work through our one-star areas as well as He can our five-star areas. And that kind of goes back to where we put our, our faith, that trustworthy object. Because too often we put it in those abilities and not in the God who uses those abilities through us. And so if we're doing that, then it probably means that first piece of confidence is something that we're struggling with. So now the third piece of confidence uh, is contentment in God's design. And in some ways, uh, I think contentment is a lot like education. It's one of those things that we both really want and then we don't want. Uh, We go to school and we'll pay for it and then we complain the whole time about everything that the teacher or professor asked for us to do. Uh, Contentment. It's something that we really want because we think it would make life better. But then the, when there's a situation where we're called to be content, we don't like it. Uh, and we kind of grumble and just get upset about it. And I think there are some great pictures of what contentment entails uh, in, the, in the novel Prince Caspian by C.S. Lewis within the Chronicles of Narnia. And, and one of those uh, is this encounter of Reepicheep the mouse. Uh, who is this valiant mouse who won undying glory at the second battle of Baruna. Don't judge me. I have little kids. It's okay for me to like this. I will like this after my kids are little, and that's okay. But we have Reepicheep the mouse, and it's at the end of the battle of Baruna. He is wounded and limping and bloody uh, as Aslan is calling the army to himself after the victory. And he is coming up to Aslan, and he begins to realize he's, he's off balance. And he's lost his tail in the battle. And he starts to apologize and back away from the presence of Aslan. And he says, excuse me, I shouldn't have come before you because a tail, it is, it is the glory and honor of a mouse. And you've got to think, for a mouse, a tail is kind of like antlers on a deer. I mean, just, that's, that's the way that a mouse would think about that. And so he's like, you know, not having a tail, that's, you know, that's the honor and glory of a mouse. And Aslan says, in a word of tender rebuke, I have often wondered if you have not thought too much of your honor. And Reepicheep—he's a he's, a he's a bold little dude. And so he says, but all the same, you have, you have placed upon us mice a very small size, and if we do not fight for our honor, then people would make short jokes and jokes about cheese and uh, and And it's at that moment, whereas is starting to get a little sassy with Aslan, that all of his fellow mice hold their tail, and they're about to to cut off their tail, and they say, we would not have an honor that was uh, withheld from the high mouse. And Aslan kind of purrs and chuckles. And he says, you have won me over. Not for the sake of your honor, but for the sake of the love of your fellow mouse, fellow mice. I will restore your tail, And it wasn't about that sense of honor. It wasn't that sense of glory uh, that won over the heart of Aslan, who represents Christ. It was those who would take that position of contentment, and we could be happy without a tail if that was denied from the one that we care for most. And it was that that won over the heart of Aslan. And then when that was done, uh, Aslan asked for the kings and queen of Narnia to stand And Peter, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy, they stood. And Aslan turns and he looks at Caspian. And to this point in the movie, Caspian had been striving, trying to become, kind of this insecurity, overcoming everything that he didn't feel like that was denied to him because of his wicked uncle Miraz who was suppressing him. And he wanted to overthrow that. And Caspian stayed, kneeled. And Aslan asked for him to stand. And Caspian says... I do not think I am ready. And Aslan says, it is for that very reason that I know that you are. When you were striving, when you were trying to prove that you were more than you actually thought you were, you weren't ready. You were dangerous. But now that you are humble enough to acknowledge, I may not be fully up to the task and I would need you, God, to do anything that you would ask me to do, now I know that you are ready. And it was in the midst of that conversation uh, that Aslan shares with Caspian uh, some of his family history. And when any of us begin to talk about our family history, who can't come up with some reasons? of, Yeah, you know, we could come up with some stories there that, you know, if you knew, I wouldn't be quite as shiny and confident as you, as you, you know, might think that I was otherwise. And, you know, sure enough, Caspian has, uh, he comes from this bunch of pirates, and Caspian is down about that, and he's saying that he wish he had a, a better family history. And Aslan says to Caspian, You come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, talking about the Genesis narrative. And that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar, and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Be content. And what is it? What is it that would help you deal with both the honor and the shame of what we go through as people, as people who are made in the image of God and people who are fallen in sin? It is knowing that in redemption we can be content. Because it is contentment uh, that prevents confidence from becoming overwhelming and exhausting. You know, In many ways, contentment... Is the restful enjoyment of performing the task that God has called me to do. It stabilizes confidence so that it doesn't run away with us in selfish ambition. In many ways, um, contentment is like what I consider to be the best parenting advice I ever got uh, when my first son was born. Uh, A trusted mentor said, Don't ever get caught looking to the next season. Enjoy every season for what it is. So when you're holding them and they can't move, don't get looking forward to crawling. When they're crawling, don't get looking forward to walking. When they're walking, don't get forward to looking forward to running. When they can run, don't get looking forward to throwing a ball with them. Enjoy every moment for what it is. And I think that's true for us, not just with our children, but true for us as God's children. That sometimes we get so looking forward to what the next thing is going to allow for us to do. That our ability to rest and to be content in what God is doing at this moment in our life. Looking into His eyes and delighting in what's going on. And thinking, this is awesome. It's not that. It's not what it will be. But this is great. We lose that. And contentment, that kind of childlike enjoyment in whatever God is allowing us to do and equipping and enabling us, knowing it's not what it's going to be a year from now or five years from now or ten years from now. It can't be or else we would have wasted those years. But this is good. And we are called to be content in it and find an enjoyment and a rest. And so one more piece on confidence and I think one of the things that we have to do in order to have a healthy sense of confidence is we have to be able to measure what is at stake. And probably the, the point in my life that draws this out more than anything else was my one inning of college baseball pitching experience. I grew up in a small little town that was 30 minutes from the nearest McDonald's. Uh, it, no scout ever came to any game that I ever played. Because they wouldn't know where to eat. They couldn't find a... I mean, there was, there was no reason for a scout to come to a game like this. And so I worked hard. I loved the game of baseball. And at my small little NAIA school that I went to, I walked on and I got accepted on the team. And then there was one game where we were getting blown out. And Coach said, "Hambrick, go warm up. And I went down to the bullpen. And this was the moment that was going to validate my entire athletic career. This was going to be the moment where I was no longer that hillbilly wannabe, but I was a college athlete. Now, on my good days as a pitcher, I could throw 80, 81. Um, If the wind was at my back and the moon was pulling the ball right from behind the catcher, I could throw 82, 83. On this day when I was on the mound and my entire athletic career was at stake, I couldn't break the speed limit. I could not have got a ticket for my fastball. It was awful. There was nothing wrong with my shoulder, with my elbow, with my back. There was just so much in my mind at stake in that moment that it impaired my ability to do something that I loved and enjoyed from the time that I was a kid. And so I think in that we can begin to look and see misplaced confidence. What does it do? It causes me to personalize every challenge and conflict. I thought every person in the stands was scorning me. I I felt this sense of embarrassment and shame because it just, this was personal. I measured myself by every action and peer. I was a failure. Never mind the fact that what I had accomplished to get to that point, it just it was a failure. There was a fear that I would be exposed as a fraud. You really thought you could do this? All of that, this overwhelming weight, when I felt like there was more at stake than there really was. Now what does true confidence allow? Uh, it allows me to see... That this, um, this is a matter of grace, not works. That whether I recorded a single out, who I was in Christ, and what He intended to do with my life, was in no way altered. Because that was a matter of grace, not my performance. It allowed me to see it was in redemption, not achievement. That in all honesty, me me telling you this story, and you hopefully beginning to see a grasp of what it's like to have healthy confidence, that the significance of that moment is much greater than if I had struck out all three batters that I faced. That God can do more in redemption than I could in achievement. And it was in Christ, not self. Uh, That nobody is going to go back and look at the scorekeeping book of Union University, to see if some kid named Brad Hambrick pitched. But what is going to be enduring is the reputation of Christ. And that the experience of playing ball and walking through that and having to battle my own insecurities, that that did a lot for the cause of Christ. Um, And so I think in that sense we can begin to see Uh, that competition and stewardship are significantly different mindsets. Competition cringes at the success of others. Because if somebody else did well on the team, that meant I was going to get cut. They couldn't do well and me accomplish my goal at the same time. Whatever they did, I had to do better. But stewardship rejoices at the success of others. Because it's an example for me to watch and to learn from. It creates this momentum of what God is doing that I can be a part of. It, it is something where I can encourage and spur them on. And so in that sense, effort emerges from our identity and our purpose. Once we know who we are and why God made us, that should spur effort. But effort should never be what validates Our confidence. Uh, It is a true sense of confidence that emerges out of a sense of identity and purpose that allows us to go through the ebb and flow, the rise and fall, the success and failure of effort without that being what defines whether we are willing to do what God calls us to do next.